Hello, welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, welcome to Sunday Forum. Uh, my name is Elizabeth Foy. I'm Head of Adult Learning here, and it's my joy and my privilege to organise these events. So thank you for coming. It's a heartening number of people for a rather a grotty February day. Um, if you are expecting Alistair McGrath to tell you about the life of the universe and everything, I have good news and bad news. The bad news is he isn't here. Uh, because a conference of his was extended by a couple of days overseas. Uh, I, th I think he's in South America, so not easy to pop over. Um, and, but the good news is he is coming back in May, uh, so it, that whole event has just shipped to May the 7th. If you're working from that leaflet, you may think it's Alison McGrath. If you're working from that leaflet, you will know that it's Canon Oakley. Now, if you want to sneak away... <laughs> <laughs> We will avert our eyes and not be hurt. On the other hand, I encourage you very strongly to stay um, because uh, I was particularly glad that uh, out of that slightly unhappy thing came a happy thing, um, which were, that we were able to slot in an event I very much wanted to put in on Sunday Forum, which is Canon Oakley, our very own Canon Oakley, um, talking about uh, a project and a book which arose out of... Um, the work we do here is the adult learning as a whole, and so it's very dear to us, I think, is true. In 2015, we had a series of events with bishops and archbishops about um, how, to keep the, how to keep the church year in a way that would nourish and deepen and, and uh, allow you to flourish, both in your own life and in, in dealing with the gospel slowly and reading the gospel slowly and reading it with our lives and the seasons rather than in tiny chunks or as a huge narrative. And out of that, we had some rather wonderful uh, events, um, which some of you may have come to, which were, which were uh, some of our favourites, I think, in some ways, um, which Mark chaired. And then uh, lovely friends at SBCK rang up Mark and said, we think this is, you know, good, and, uh, and we should do a book of these talks and of the other seasons. At the time, it seems a surprisingly long time ago, we didn't have any women bishops. So Mark, I think, made the decision that... Um, that we would like the other seasons to be with the, the new women bishops. And so this book has come of it with Mark's introduction, uh, which I commend to you very highly, both as a thing to keep through the year and as we plunge into ordinary time for a quick gulp between uh, the great seasons of Christmas and the great seasons of the Passion and Resurrection. Um, I think you'll find it refreshing. I've just reread his introduction on the tube and was again... <laughs> That's a slightly terrible thing to say to your boss. And <laughs> I was again kind of encouraged and nourished by it. So we'll have it uh, for sale at the end of this event uh, at a handsome discount, I have to say, for today only. And uh, also this, which many of you will have and know. So uh, I'm not really going to introduce Mark because it's too weird to introduce him to his own place of work and indeed introduce my own bot. But I'm sure you know him. He's the Canon Chancellor here, uh, a wonderful preacher, a wonderful writer. A wonderful boss, I've got to say, actually, and an encouragement, an encouragement. So thank you for coming. Over to Mark. Thank you, uh, Elizabeth. Uh, and as always uh, in our adult learning programme, the idea that was behind the whole series from which the book came was uh, Elizabeth's. So uh, although I often stand up and take the credit, uh, actually, uh, as always, the, the idea is um, Just quickly tell you that the title of the book, A Good Year, is in no way my comment on how I think things are going politically. At the moment. <laughs> 
one or two people thought I had written a sort of apologia for Trump. Uh, <laughs> but it's not that, okay? So if uh, a good year is confusing, let's think of a godly year. Uh, that might be another way of thinking about it. I'm not telling you anything new when I say that we're living, I think, at uh, a time of great uh, spiritual hunger and thirst. There is no natural vocabulary for the soul that people are growing up with at the moment. And so there's a lot of searching uh, that's going on in people, quite often serious searching, I think, in younger people. Uh, for the words that might be plausible and trustworthy and for a commitment of life which uh, adds up to something more than, as we often say here, spending money we don't have on things we don't want in order to impress people we don't like. (laughs) Is there more to it than that? And I think people are on the search. And they're very quick, I think, in this world of uh, lots of opinions and lots of words uh, to sniff out the inauthentic the lie, the post-truth, as we're now saying. And it seems to me that in this, uh, in this environment, um, the Christian uh, community has uh, a great uh, period of potential in communicating who, um, who we are, what we believe, in two ways. You do it, first of all, by basic information. You try and tell people... Uh, where we've come from, uh, the things we uh, find important to our identity, uh, the things that matter. So we're trying to inform people because I don't think quite often they're the basic uh, information and facts about the Christian faith, about the Christian tradition are there. Uh, And if they are, they've been placed there quite often when they're children at school. And so people grow up in other ways in their life, but they still have a sort of school child's take on religion, and they know that it's childish. It's often perceptive, by the way, but it's often, it doesn't feel integrated with their adult mature life. So they're, they're looking for information, but information is not enough. We just don't want another tap on the Google uh, and think we understand Christianity. Uh, it's also about formation. So it's this mixture of information, but then trying to translate it into the life you're living, into the relationships that you make. And so Christian learning ultimately is for formation of of humanity. So at its best, and let me tell you, I know it at its worst, the church uh, is really a sort of school for relating where you try and deepen your relating to God, to each other, and I think to yourself. So information and formation, those are the two things that seem to me to be key. And therefore the church goes into overdrive trying to work out uh, how to do this in in such a time. And I think one of the points I make in the uh, other book uh, is that we've been banging on so much about relevance my helpful assistant here will... Uh, relevance was the key. When I was at theological college, we were always trying to be relevant. How are we going to be relevant to the age? And, and I'm rather fed up with this word. I think the real key word is resonance. The, the, the speaking to a slightly uh, deeper depth in, in human beings 
that is not passing in the moment, but is usually there simply because we're human beings uh, in whatever age and whatever geography. So resonance, information and formation. How does the church go about this? Um, sometimes in, in really embarrassing ways. I, I, I've seen uh, lots of awful posters, for instance, that churches put up. I saw one in uh, North, uh, North London once that simply said, uh, tired of sin, <laughs> then come in. <laughs> to which somebody had uh, put on the bottom, but if not, telephone 6427... <clears throat> so we haven't always struck the chord, it seems to me, uh, and and really helped uh, scratch the itch. But instead, it seemed to me that instead of trying to be uh, novel and new and imaginative, which I think we ought to be, by the way, uh, also let's look at the tradition. And one of the ways, it seems to me, which the church has tried to both inform the Christian community about the Christian faith and also help form Christians uh, in their development, the, you know, the amendment of life that we all need, the, uh, the conversion of life that we're all trying to live, uh, is through seasoning the year. And these are the seasons of the church's year, uh, Advent and so on, and I'm going to talk about them in a moment. So let's look, I thought, uh, and so did Elizabeth, at the seasons of the year and what they might be informing, and also how they're helping us to form the Christian community. And for many people, you know, the, the change of a, of a season is simply because the altar frontals change colour. You know, so, oh, it, you know, something's happened, it's gone from purple to white, and, and you know, that was the seasonal change. But for the Christian tradition, it's so much more than that. And not only, as I researched it more, not only do things change in church in the way that people pray, in the way they sing, the way they worship and so on, but culturally in communities where the church was um, quite key and central to their communities, things happened in the village or in the town uh, associated with the seasons and its changes. And this is the, the first important point I really want to make is that although the seasons are sequential, just like spring, summer, autumn, winter, one passes into another, and you need all of them to live the year. So in the church's year, all the seasons, I think, are pointing to an element and to a truth about Christian faith, which we are living all the time. They're all jostled up. So, you know, you might be having a Good Friday day, and you might be having an Easter day. We're all full of devotion and dereliction. We all know reverence and most of us know rebellion. Uh, we're going through these things all the time. We're living out a human life uh, you know, in relationship with our Christian faith and it's all jostling up. What the seasons do is to sort of take that bundle of chaos we call trying to be a Christian and to put it into uh, seasons, into a, a sequence, so that you can explore the whole collage, as it were, that's a key word for me, uh, the whole collage of what it means to be a Christian believer. 
and what it means to be a human being in relationship to that belief. And it, and it takes it, it dissects it, and says, right, let's start with Advent. What's that pointing us to? And I'll, I'll try and show you what I think Advent is pointing us to in a moment. And as you just heard, uh, we thought that some of the main um, teachers and communicators of the faith are, are bishops. I think bishops are there, um, like all of us, they don't always uh, manage this 100%, of course, but I think they are there to help feed the Christian community uh, with information and formation. Uh, I think bishops are there to help secure the integrity of the church. And, uh, and so when we realized that we would be having women bishops, we held back a little while and we put in the talks that we had from the male bishops. And then as soon as we had women bishops, we said, could you fill in the gaps, please? Because we haven't got somebody who's done anything on epiphany. So Libby Lane, who was the first woman bishop, the Bishop of Stockport, very happily agreed to write the chapter on epiphany. And, and so it built up. Um, so um, I think what happens is when you read uh, this book and you, you go in and out of the different seasons, I think what's happening is you by doing that, are getting in touch again with various elements of your own life and your own belief, um, which you might recognise one day and not the other. But that's what the seasons are doing. And uh, I hope, and I, I believe very much, that Christian learning should always dispel illusions, but without leaving you disillusioned. <laughs> okay? So I hope that it is a hopeful book because of it, because it is trying to elucidate and convey the Christian faith. So let me just tell you uh, what the chapters are in the book. There's an introduction by me, uh, which I won't talk too much about because um, some of the things I'm going to say now are included in it. But Sarah uh, Mullally is the Bishop of Crediton, and she begins the book by focusing on the first season of the church's year, Advent. And uh, in the Roman Empire, when uh, an emperor came to power and ceremonially entered into the province or to the city, it was described as the emperor's advent. It comes from the Latin word adventus, which simply means arrival. Ta-da! He's here. Okay. And we know, uh, actually, with the city of London, uh, because we found a gold medallion. When I say we, I'm, I don't mean me personally. I... <laughs> wasn't out there with my little trowel, uh, but they did find a gold medallion um, which showed uh, the gates of the City of London with exactly one of these advents in 296 of, of Constantius. And, and what happens is that Latin-speaking Christians uh, borrowed this word and concept uh, for Jesus Christ, who was, of course, their only Lord and Emperor and invested it with the meaning of the Saviour's arrival into their city, as it were, into the city of their heart. And uh, the second century uh, Christian writer, Justin Martin, wrote, uh, Martyr, wrote that it was foretold, this is a quote, it was foretold that there would be two advents of Christ, one in which he will appear in suffering and without honour or beauty, and the one in which he will return in glory to judge all people. So these were the two advents that the, the Christian faith began to focus on. 
uh, this dual significance. It was celebrating incarnation, Jesus coming in, in human form, but also focusing on the end of time where there would be this judgment. So what happens in Advent, we go into purple, which traditionally is a sign of uh, penitence in the Christian faith. If you're making your confession, uh, the priest will put on a purple stole. But for me, I think in Advent, the reason it's purple, and this is the sort of slightly awful poet in me, I think it's more like the dark purple of, of an early dawn. You know, the sky is still not quite sure whether it's night or, or day, uh, and we're waiting for the light. And the language of Advent, um, the great O's, as they're called, the great uh, sentences, call out to God, O cornerstone, O Emmanuel, come to us. So it's a season in the vocative. It's a season crying out to God to do what? To come and make us complete. Advent is the season when we suddenly know we are restless individuals and communities who are as yet incomplete. And whereas I can cut my finger and, and it heals quite nicely uh, over time, actually the human soul, the human heart is not so gifted that we need love to come from the outside to heal us, as it were, to make us whole. And Advent knows this. So Advent is a season of incompleteness, calling out to God to come and, uh, and touch us. It's a pregnant season, and of course this is why it focuses more and more on the pregnant Mary as well, the contours of her body literally being pushed into a newness of life. Now, I told you about some of the um, strange things that would happen in uh, villages around the different seasons. And in Normandy, in France, there was a great tradition on Advent Sunday that you would pay small children uh, a few francs to go and run around the fields where all the haystacks had been formed and to bash them really hard so all the rats came out. Um, it was a really good day to do it, it seems, because if I can make a comparison, it was a season where if you were also going to be facing that final advent of Christ, that judgment, you had to get rid of your rats. You had to actually face up to who you really were. Uh, advent, therefore, is not for beginners. It is a bit of a scary uh, season because we start talking about this rather uncomfortable word, judgment. Now, we all have uh, mental images of this judgment, normally from medieval depictions of it, of pokes, pokers going up unfortunate parts of bishops and flames, <laughs> flames happening and uh, you know, devils eating your head. Actually, what Advent says is, this judgment will ultimately be hugely liberating. It will be uncomfortable because at last somebody's going to look you in the eye and tell you who you really are, who you have become. And that's going to be awful and it's going to be such a relief because I won't need to pretend anymore. All my masks are eventually just going to be dissolved up and I will look, as Paul says in that wonderful uh, uh, Corinthians 13, face to face. 
and that will be the moment of great liberating love, which unfortunately has this slightly frightening word, judgment. So Advent is saying, okay, I'm going to try and prepare myself for that Advent, that coming, that looking at me in the face, this, this God who's actually going to become like me in order to see me and understand me as I am. Uh, so the message of Advent is, okay, take a deep breath. It's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. Let redemption come near. And there is Advent. And I think Sarah... Uh, beautifully unravels the themes of, of, of uh, Advent in her first essay. But then we come to Rowan. Now, Rowan never writes anything down. It's all there. I don't know where, how he does it. Uh, and so what we had to do with Rowan is we simply had to listen to the video of him, uh, type it all up, uh, and he's very holy and talks like this, and that's, so it's not always very easy... <laughs> Uh, type it all up, and then I tried to edit it uh, and sent it to him, and of course he said, oh, that's fine, that's fine. So you have, really, a a script that came right out of him, Uh, no piece of paper really in front of him. Well, there was, I think it had two words on it. Um, uh, And what he started to do in his talk about Christmas is how, you know, this question... What would a Christian Christmas look like? What would a Christian Christmas feel like? If, if you take away Santas and lots of presents and you know, all that sort of commercial, consumerist, what, what is Christmas going to look like for the Christian? That was his task. And he starts it off by uh, looking at the carols that we all sing. And we, we often go into sort of auto-drive, don't we, at Christmas. We all start singing John a little... Uh, and he said there were, there were basically three sorts of carol. The first is sort of basically summed up as, ooh, isn't it cold? <laughs> uh, shouldn't we be having a jolly time? And, uh, you know, it's, ooh, it's a bit brisk out there. Uh, and, for example, Jingle Bells, uh, I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas, uh, and Deck the Halls with Boughs of Holly. It's parky out there, let's have a good time. The second kind of carol, he said, is, ah, isn't the baby sweet? (laughs) Away in a manger? Uh, Once in Royal David's city? And then, he said, there's a third kind of carol, uh, which contains lots and lots of really disturbing, unusual, and totally incomprehensible ideas. And it's those that, of course, being Rowan, he wants to explore. Uh, he, by the way, uh, if you're wanting to know what sort of carols he's talking about there, O come all ye faithful, uh, and the second verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And he said, maybe even we three kings of Orient are. Uh, when you uh, are not in autopilot uh, and full of mince pies and sherry, go and read those carols that you've been singing and just see that he's absolutely right. It's pretty tough and difficult theology. But of course, Rowan being Rowan, and this is something I've learned very much from him, for the spiritual difficulty is often very important. Okay, it's quick clarity you've got to be careful of. Difficulty opens up possibilities. And so he looks at um, 
uh, at the carols and then explores what some of the things are being uh, said by Christmas. One of the things that really moved me on that night is he said, you know, what Christmas celebrates is you can't actually lure God down. You can't lure God and convince God to like you. You can't, although we think we've got to, we've got to somehow please the headmaster or we've got to please the parent. Actually, God's not like that. God's going to come anyway, <laughs> and God loves you anyway, uh, whether you're understanding that or not. And he said at one point, trying to convince God to like you would be as futile as trying to convince a waterfall to be wet. I was really struck by that. Trying to convince God to like us would be just as futile as trying to convince a waterfall to be wet. And he explores that idea because that, of course, is what he believes incarnation is, is, is God literally becoming us so that we know he's one with us. Um, Libby Lane, who is the Bishop of Stockport, as I said, then moves us into Epiphany. And Epiphany is a time that has really grabbed the Christian imagination, um, not only because of the hymns we sing, which I actually think are some of the best, and maybe the musician here will tell us, but I think Advent and Epiphany hymns are some of the most beautiful that, that we have. Uh, but the art and the poetry of Epiphany depicting the Magi, okay, these uh, sometimes called wise men, sometimes called kings, but Magi is probably the better word. It's the root of our word magician. And, of course, to some it might explain what they're carrying. Gold, frankincense and myrrh might have been the props of their magic show. You know, all the... You know, smoke and screens, yeah, a bit of smoke. And so when they lay them down, that's bigger than you might first realise. They're giving up their fraudulent profession in order to go home a different way. It's one interpretation. Um, but of course, uh, nowhere in the uh, scriptures does it say that there are only three of them. Um, the only reason we think there are three is because there are three gifts. But, you know, if Tesco's operated like that, uh, <laughs> it would be a very different shopping experience. Um, only one present per person. Um, originally, the Magi were thought of astro as astrologers, hence their interest with the stars. Um, but they came down in the imagination to being three. Um, Tertullian in the second century said... Um, they might have been kings. But, of course, then you get these beautiful early depictions of them, uh, often uh, as the most famous one in Otan, which I think you tweeted, where the three kings are in bed together. Now, the House of Bishops wouldn't like that, let me tell you. <laughs> but there they all are, sharing a bed. And um, one uh, is sort of fast asleep, you know. <laughs> one is sort of one eye is half open. And one's bright. And these, of course, became the sort of three spiritual states of humanity. You know, you're either fast asleep or you're actually alert and awake to, to uh, the divine. Uh, then they were given names, Balthazar, Melchior, Caspar. Um, and from those names, uh, BMC, 
Balthazar, Melchior, Casper. Um, if you take CMB, it, it, they're the first letters at, at the beginning of the words Christus Mansionum Benedicat, Christ bless this home. So you took the names, their first letters, you put it in chalk on your doorway at Epiphany at, so that you were blessing your home. Um, however, they didn't always have those names. Uh, in um, Syria, and uh, this was something I really wanted to put in because of Syria being in the news, in Syria they have very different names. In Syria, and of course, let's be reminded, Christianity is not a Western phenomenon, so for Syrian Christians, they are not Balthazar, Melchior, and Caspar. They are Lavandadad, Hamistas, and Gushnasaf. <laughs> Much better. Um, and then, of course, Bede says, well, I think they represented all the three corners of the known world, one from Asia, one from Africa, one from Europe, and so one is always depicted then uh, as being black. Um, and then, of course, the, the present started to have mystical meaning, as we sing. Uh, and uh, gold was for a king and myrrh, his sepulchre, and so on. But also, Epiphany doesn't just stay with the Magi. Uh, it also thinks about the baptism. And, uh, and that's why a lot of blessings with water also take place in Epiphany Tide. And uh, one of the things that strikes me about the baptism of Jesus and why Epiphany is, is such an important uh, season of communicating the Christian faith is that in baptism, what happens to Jesus? He leaves the shore. Now, remember, everybody had gone out to the desert to see who this John Giza was. He's dressed funny. He, he sounds, you know, as if he's got it in for people. He's telling them they've got to change their lives. So they're all going out into the desert, which was quite a difficult thing to do. It was not just, you know, get in the bus. It was a difficult, dangerous journey to go out and see what was going on out there. They go out. They're next to the river. And along comes his cousin and gets into the water. And what does the story say? It says that he goes under the water. And, of course, when you go under water, what happens is that you can't hear anything else. It's all drowned out, apart from one thing called your heartbeat. It's really uncomfortable. I don't like hearing my heartbeat. If I put my head on the pillow, I really... Ugh. But that's what you hear when you go underwater. Boom, boom, boom. Right? You suddenly remind that you've got a life. And it's fragile. And there it is, ticking away. So Jesus goes under all the noise from the shores, the noise of gossip and politics, all drowned out. He hears his heart. He's pulled up into fresh air. He has to take a new breath. <gasps> and then he hears the one voice that matters. All those other voices, the one voice comes. You are my child. I love you. He then goes out into the desert, and I'm sure the story is saying he now had to learn how to live up to that voice and not live down to all the other voices that were being told. Uh, and of course, we're even told he hears a voice tempting him to live down, and he, he refuses it. So epiphany message, it seems to me, is vital to a sense of who you are and, and, and which voices you listen to.
Then Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, takes us into that desert, into Lent, which is probably the season that most people have heard about, um, because of the ashing on the head and because you're supposed to give up sugar or whatever it is. Um, and of course, the day before Lent begins, we have Mardi Gras, or what we call Pancake uh, Tuesday, and you know, pancakes are really good, really good symbol actually for what for what Lent is trying to say. It says, you know, life is a little bit pancake esque in that it's rather too fat and a bit flat. You've got lots to live with and very little sense of what to live for. And don't you think you need to amend that? So a bit like the modern soul, the pancake, um, you know, a bit fatty and a bit flat, Lent is this invitation that says, you know, what would it like? What would it be like for you to stop being a consumer and become a citizen? And not just a citizen of the UK or of Europe or America or wherever it is, but of this kingdom that Jesus was preaching about. What would it be like? How would life change? And I think Justin Welby beautifully explores this. You know, what is it in us when we are just continually wanting to reach towards you know, another gadget or another book or another shirt or even another sandwich? What is it about human desire that we need to explore a bit more? What's it giving voice to? Because a lot of people see it as the thou shalt not season. And yet for Welby, uh, it's the thou shalt. It's I shall find a balance again. It's almost, I think, a bit like a snowfall in the soul. You know, when it heavily snows, it doesn't really do that here. But I used to live in Denmark, and I know about the snowfalls. They, they, they're heavy, and it slows everything down. And it, in fact, what you hear is different. And you have to work out if it's worth going out to the shop or not, or whether you could just stay. You know, it's a time of discernment. Uh, and um, I think Welby, in his, in his uh, reflections, point us to this time of decision. Um, and I think also it's the time where we learn most about grace. You know, this is another word. We use it about God. We don't really often think about what we mean by it. What does grace mean? Grace, says Lent, in this stark beauty, is always giving more than you owe and receiving more than you deserve. That's what your graceful life will look like because that's what God does. And uh, those of you who joined me uh, not too long ago to look at T.S. Eliot's um, Four Quartets will be reminded of him uh, talking about us living in this twittering world. That was way before Twitter, by the way. <laughs> this twittering world, he said, where we are distracted from distraction by distraction. Go back to the Four Quartets this Lent. Um, it's a beautiful bit of scrutiny of, of who we've become. Then Stephen Cottrell, who is the Bishop of Chelmsford. And if you know Stephen Cottrell, he lived up to his reputation. Stephen Cottrell is a firefly 
in the dark night of the church. Uh, he peppers you and challenges you and pushes you. Uh, and at one point he was talking about Holy Week and he was telling the clergy out there, if you're planning Holy Week services, if you've got it, flaunt it. <laughs> and, and basically he was saying, you have got it. You've got the Christian faith, so flaunt it. You know, explore it, express it, celebrate it. Do not become apologetic about it. Um, and, uh, of course, Holy Week begins with Palm Sunday. What happens on Palm Sunday, of course, is it was um, uh, the Jewish festival of Passover. What happens is Pontius Pilate, who's in charge of looking after all these difficult people in this town, uh, oh, Lord, they're going to start creating riots. So he's got to come out of his nice pad by the sea. He literally had a pad by the sea, and he had to come in because there'd probably be trouble. So what happens on one part of, of Jerusalem, and Marcus Borg, if you've ever read his book on Holy Week, he's, he talks about this. On one side of the city, Pontius Pilate comes in with the cavalry, the armour, you can see all the silver shimmering, the power, this is power, human power, entering the city to make sure these Jewish people don't start a revolt. I'm going to be there, I'm going to put them down if they do. What's happening on the other side of the city is a man is coming in riding a donkey and they're putting down palms. And it's not cavalry, it's Calvary that we're aiming for here. And so you get this whole city poised already between two forms of power. You also see it in bowls of water. Pontius Pilate picks up a bowl of water, washes his hands of all responsibility. That's not mine, thank you very much. Jesus picks up a bowl of water and puts it under people's feet and says, no, if you want to be my disciple, I'll show you. This is what you do. It's, in effect... The contempor you know, his contemporary version of cleaning somebody's toilet, washing your feet. And then, of course, right at the end, that ironic statement, king of the Jews, a king. Uh, well, yes, if you want to follow his pattern of it, but it's not going to be like the one that came in the city, uh, like Pontius Pilate. And um, Holy Week uh, is explored, as I say, by Stephen in the in a very imaginative way, as is Stephen Conway, the Bishop of Ely, who then looks at Eastertide. And he does this through art. Um, we tend to think, don't we, that theology and thoughts about God is something you do purely in your, you know, your rational brain. You do it through words, you write, you read, and somehow you're a better Christian. Actually, no. Uh, there's a whole sensory and artistic and imaginative uh, forms of expressing our faith and what he does is he looks at three uh, pictures and he says you know what's happening in Easter here uh, how can you understand Easter um, because right from the early days Easter has been explored through art because it's a rather difficult thing to be rational about actually uh, so we need all the imagination that we've got and uh, you could think, for instance, of the very early icons of Easter, where you probably know one of them is 
Jesus standing on a rather precarious looking bridge. And down here, coming out the ground almost, is a very old looking man. And down here is a very old looking woman. And he's actually pulling them up. And round about, there are all these padlocks, all broken and keys. And you suddenly realise that Jesus is pulling up Adam and Eve. Now, when Adam and Eve last saw one another, they were blaming one another. Oh, um, well, she gave me it to eat. Oh, no, well, no, he, the snake. And so they all, they'd gone into their own hells of blame. And there they still are. And Jesus is pulling them up and reintroducing them to one another on a very precarious looking bridge. <laughs> a beautiful early depiction of what a resurrected life might mean, of, of revisiting your relationships, um, that this was new life. And of course, <clears throat> in communities, in villages, Eastertide was, you know, riotous. Um, pace-egging, holly-bussing, coal-carrying, bottle-kicking, mystery plays, and so on. And uh, I talk a little bit about all those. And let it not be uh, forgotten that in some medieval parts of the church, there was this thing called um, Rhesus Pascalis, where it was thought that the only true way you could celebrate Easter as Christian community was having a really good laugh. How would you do that? You would get a sort of naughty vicar routine going on. Uh, think, you know, think sort of Frankie Howard, uh, or Mrs. Unoda, uh, telling rather naughty jokes to get people laughing. And that was thought to be the true way of celebrating um, Easter. They used to get into a lot of trouble with bishops for doing this. Surprise, surprise. Uh, but it really was sort of whoops, there goes my mitre uh, sort of routine. And, and we know that in Bavaria, this was very popular. As it was also, and this is where I'm coming to my end, at Pentecost, this season that goes into red, fiery, the spirit, those tongues of flame. Uh, we know, for instance, that again, why Bavaria? I don't know. They obviously had a lot of beer. Um, but... We know that in some churches in Bavaria, in the medieval period, they had a hole put in the roof and um, they would lower down on Pentecost a wooden bird. Right, like this. And the congregation would look at it and go, oh, sweet. It's the same hole, by the way, that they had pulled up a statue of Jesus on the Ascension. And they lowered down a wooden dove to represent the spirit. But up above in the rafters were some choir boys with big buckets of water. And while everybody looked, <laughs> uh, so they'd pour water down. And the person who got the wettest was known for the whole year in the village as the Pentecost bird, the Finkstvogel. Um, so the, the, the message was... Um, the Spirit of God is not wooden, it drenches you. And if you ever think that you can come into a room or a church and be embraced by the Spirit of God and leave just as you came in, you've got another thing coming. So let's look at water. Um, and there's one example of how I think 
a lot of uh, present uh, church life has lost its playfulness. Uh, and I think we could revisit that a little bit. I, I could go on, uh, but, but I've talked too long. So finally, I would just want to say that uh, this, this way that the church has seasoned its year finishes with this strange thing called ordinary time, right? which is anything but ordinary. Because we go into green simply because this is your natural state now. We've, you're being reminded that this is the time for you to grow, to blossom. You're trying to translate all this that you've been encountering through the year now into the rest of your life. Uh, so green because, yeah, things are blossoming, maybe even maturing nicely. Uh, uh, and, and so ordinary, not really. This is being a Christian. Thanks very much. hand up or shout out, otherwise I can start while you digest a bit with all that. Uh, and so I'm going to, I hardly ever get to do this, it's marvellous. Um, so uh, I wanted to ask you, what's your favourite season and what do you think's the hardest? Um, the answer's the same. Oh. <laughs> Advent is my favourite season and it, because I think it's the hardest. Okay. Um, I like... I'm a bit of a Christmas person, so I'm, I'm starting to get a bit excited by the third week of Advent. I have to acknowledge that. Um, but the themes of the incompleteness, the restlessness, the heart seeking some, some help, uh, alongside that idea that the human mask might be eaten up in something we call judgment, but which actually might be very loving... That, that theme for me is, is very resonant and very needed at the moment, but I think it's difficult. I think it's very difficult. So Advent is my season. I actually think most people... I could probably divide you up now into... You know, some of you are Advent Christians. I've met a few Good Friday Christians. Uh, some of you will be Pentecostal. I think we have a season that, that, that sort of voices some element of our personality and preferences... But the point is, you need all of them in order to go through the year. You know, it, it won't allow you to get away with your own preferences. You've got to have the whole... Mm. The whole. Mm. Yes, yes. Questions, so, yeah. Questions. Oh, yeah. look, good hands. OK, at the front here, and then we'll come to each other. Uh, <coughs> we described the two approaches to Christmas. My son's married a young woman who um, just... You know, believes in Santa Claus and presents and nothing to do with the Christian story. How can I tactfully introduce the Christian approach to Christmas, you know, without upsetting them both? So the question is how, if for a young child, Christmas is simply grottos and how many presents can I get, how can I tactfully, helpfully introduce them to another through the home? Don't just keep the seasons in the church building. Do what other faith communities do better than us often. I'm thinking particularly of the uh, uh, Jewish faith. Is take it into the home and make it fun. 
So uh, if uh, you know, there are lots of imaginative ways of playing with the coming. I mean, the advent calendar is the obvious one, but there are ways of doing that which are quite um, quite fresh. Yes, yes, I know. Yes. But, um, I mean, I've, there are some, quite a lot of resources around now for trying to help Christian families bring faith better into the home and to do it through the seasons. Um, uh, so, if, you know, if you can't find any, come back to me. I, I'm trying to think of the name of the author of one that's in my mind, but I'll, I can let you know. But I would, I would say don't just drag them to church and say you've got to enjoy it, because <laughs> that doesn't work for me. Uh, <laughs> But let's try and let's try and say what it, well, what does it mean? I mean, even lighting a candle in a window, you know, on a dark night, it, it can be magical and memorable for young people. You know, why 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 is why is Dad doing that? Um, just going back to the last question, there might be a really useful resource in the shop that's across the road because they have things for children. Don't they? Yes, they do. Yes. I'm an Easter person. Mm. Actually, if I view the, the move from dark to light. Mm. Um, well, I wanted to ask you about Easter and Christmas. Why is Christmas fixed and yet Easter moves? Ah. Um, and how do these points in the year relate to the real dates of Christ's birth and Christmas? Yes, well, the Christian date for Christmas, of course, was taking over a pagan date. And the Easter date, there's a lot of debate actually at the moment, isn't there, about making it a fixed date, but at the moment it's caught up with the seasons of, of the lunar seasons. Um, it's tradition, actually, but there is some moves. I think the Archbishop of Canterbury recently talked about making Easter a fixed date, but at the moment it's a movable feast and you know sometimes it's very early. Uh, Easter is March and sometimes it's late April. Late this year. It's late this year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. What a good Lent would be for me. Um, I think I've I've tended to do that. Try to my balance is you know what can I give up and still survive. <laughs> so. What can I do without? I think I need more than that at the moment. I think I'm... It's not what can I live without, but actually what do I want to live for? So for me, I think this Lent is going to be more proactive to try and see what do I really believe? What are my priorities? Why is it when I'm listening to certain things, I won't get too political here, but... When I'm listening to the news, let's say, at the moment, why do I get angry? And why? Why? What is it that I believe? And what can I do about that, rather than just moan and and worry? So I think for me, Lent's going to be a little bit more proactive and about asking what I can commit to rather than give up. Oh, so gentleman there. Um, let's go back to the spiritual hunger and thirst. I think that's a really key thing mm. for our time. But then, um, okay, I responded, you used the word 
word Twitter, and of course this may be well, our community, the world we're in is smartphone. Yep. And so instant and fast. And I just wonder, is there such a big disconnect between these two or your thoughts? No, I think we've got to utilise every form of communication we can. But also, I don't think, as Padre Tumor says, whatever the death of Jesus means, he shouldn't be able to fit it on a fridge magnet. <laughs> so 130 whatever uh, isn't going to be enough. Um, however, that doesn't mean I think that we have to become sort of Luddites and just say the only way is the sermon. If only they would come and listen to Canon Oakley's sermon, they'd really understand. Because they're not going to. Right. So I'm all for imaginative use of social media and various forms of communication, but I am exactly for all of them, <laughs> not just for, for thinking that trendy use of one is going to convert the world, because I don't think it does. Ultimately, I think what, what helps people understand is meeting and hearing people face-to-face, um, and, and because the danger of so much social media uh, at the moment is we actually start to distrust the messages more and more. Um, And actually, authenticity is spotted in a conversation normally. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, Does anybody else want to ask a question? Oh, oh, yes, we've another gentleman over there. In the church where I play the organ, we have Easter Vigil at quarter to six in the morning on Easter Day. Yep. I think that's a great blessing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I've written a magazine article trying to encourage people to come because it seems people people come on Good Friday. Yes. But they're actually missing the point. Yeah. Easter Vigil really does tell you the story yeah. of your creation and everything that matters. Yeah. So, can you suggest other things to get people to come on Quarter to Six in the morning? Well, if you believe, if you believe it at Quarter to Six in the morning, you're going to believe it any time, aren't you? Um, I agree with you. I think it's quite exciting uh, to make the effort. You know, in the Times, they used to advertise church services somewhere between gardening and, uh, uh, and uh, obituaries, I think. Um, it, it treated sort of religious services as a sort of hobby. If we can get out of that sort of apathy, that it's just something you're doing because actually Morrison's is shut... And actually, it's, it's something you commit to, which might mean you just get up a bit earlier one day and discover what happens in the dawn, um, which is a fabulous part of the day, as, as you all know. Um, and then what would happen if you breakfasted together, that you broke the fast, break fast together? Um, yeah. But the only way you can do it, I think, is, is slowly building it up. That I'm trying to think when I did it in my parish, you know, I think I had eight the first time I did it, and then next year I had about 18, because it sort of spread. Actually, it's quite fun. <laughs> and the vicar lit a fire, and he, his hair nearly blew up. As you can see, <laughs> it, it did. Uh, yeah, so I think it's slowly but surely, and not being not being dismayed when it's, things start small, because, you know, all this started off with 12 people in an upper room. Yeah. Oh. Mark, you and I are both clerk in the Diocese of London. Yep. If you were in parish ministry, how would you observe the church? 
Mom. Yes, if I were in parish ministry, uh, how would I observe? In the countryside. In the countryside, yes. I would think I would, I would do a lot more locality stuff, which I think is often easier. I mean, say around here. Maybe less so for you in the Barbican, I don't know, but quite difficult to bring various people together that aren't meeting one another. But I'm trying to think of, my, say, my grandmother's village. The church is still pretty central to the identity of the village. And a lot of things dance around the church building and the community hall, which is next to it. And I think I would play with that a bit more. Um, the temptation is, is that you're only going to be able to celebrate the Christian year in the church. But I think that's not true. And, and you know, if you've got a church school, for instance, you should be using the children there more to, and exploring it with them on their ground, with their parents and so on. I think that's made more difficult at the moment in, in the bigger cities. But, um, and we're not all aware of the changing seasons, no. the changing light and dark, the no. smell of spring. Or the stars, yeah. you know. I was thinking the other day when I, I went to Shropshire, which is my home county, and the, I saw the stars. I thought, I remember them. <laughs> and the thing about the stars is, whenever you talk about the stars, have you noticed we whisper? Now, that, for me, it should be like that for Christians about the divine. Yeah. Look at God. <laughs> and that, I think, is what the seasons are trying to do. It's trying to get us to whisper the fact that God is not an object of knowledge, but the cause of wonder. Now, yeah. thought it was a bit of a... went off piece to that. But... Fast, beautiful ending. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Alex.